Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. So I have a friend named Wendell. Wendell is, um, he's getting older now. And the reason I put this in there is because I'm hoping he'll watch this. <laughs> but he is uh, an amazing man. He's one of, the, one of the people who I've had in my life in recent years who I still think I'd like to grow up and be like that guy. And uh, he worked for, uh, for Crew for all those years. And back in the 70s, he was responsible in the, in the movement of Crew to help build the athletes ministry called Athletes in Action. And he started it, and he was the leader of it. And for years, he was the president of it. And he's just a terrific guy. And, and uh, I got the opportunity to work with him for a couple summers. And the kind of guy who, no matter what came up, everyone wants to go into problem-solving mode or whatever mode. And Wendell's first question was, yeah, but did you pray about it? And he just had this way of bringing us back to what was important over and over. But he joked with me because he was no longer uh, the leader of Athletes in Action by that point. He would joke with me that his name is Wendell used to be. You know, Wendell used to be the president of Athletes in Action. Wendell used to be. You know, guys like Josh McDowell or, or those people who you read, their, these were his peers. If you've ever read uh, Henry Cloud's book, um, Changes That Heal, he's this famous Christian counselor. When I, when I was friends with Wendell, and he said things like, yeah, when I wanted to go see a counselor, and, and Henry told me this, and Henry told me that, and I'm like, Henry, you, ser you seriously, you just went and saw Henry Cloud? He's like, yeah, like that's what you do, you know, he's that kind of guy. But he's at the end of his life now, and all those things are in the past. And from the, from the vantage point of our world, it's kind of a has-been. Wendell used to be. And uh, the question of identity it never goes away, does it? That question of who am I? What makes me matter? How do I really fit in in this world? What makes me somebody that people would want to have around? What makes me somebody that people would be like, ooh, step away from that one? You know, what makes me who I am? Well, in this series, this Trust Fall series, we've been wanting to explore Jesus. We've been wanting to pay attention to him. We we're Christian, that word Christian, right, means that we would, we would think that what we are is the people who see Jesus and think, that guy knows what he's doing. He's figured it out. We should try to be like him. Of course, if we're going to do that, it means crosses and, and Jesus didn't have a home and how homeless should I be to follow Jesus, right? And the gospel writers do a great job of letting us know what it is about Jesus that we want to see and experience and follow. And so without further ado, I want to jump back right where we were last week. If you were here, we were uh, Jesus before he began any ministry, before he heals people, before he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount or any of those things. The first thing he does in public's ministry is, is come to John the Baptist and ask to be baptized. And that's where we picked up last week. And so we've got the verse up there with uh, number 187, if you like it. Um, and uh, I don't, <laughs> my brain, I apologize. It's a joke. If my brain thinks it, my mouth says it. So I have to keep really careful what I think. Um, it's like preaching Tourette's syndrome up here. I apologize. But going on. So Jesus had come down to be baptized. And, and, when, and immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And, the, and he saw the Son of God, or the Spirit of God, descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. If you're into literature, this is called the halcyon day. This is the day when all was right. If 
you're watching Lord of the Rings, it's Bilbo's birthday party at the beginning. When the kids were little, they would want to watch Lord of the Rings. They're going to be watching Lord of the Rings, right? So I would just show them Bilbo's birthday party. They could watch the fireworks and stuff and be all happy. And they'd be like, oh, that's it, click. Uh, <laughs> the day when all is right. If you've never seen Lord of the Rings, it's a movie, everybody, with, never mind. It's time. It's time. Go see it. But uh, it's only like 12 hours of movie. Hurry up. This afternoon, you can get it in. Um, here's this day for Jesus where he's standing in the river, where he's clearly in the presence of God. And, and the spirit descends like a dove, and his father's like, I love this guy, and it feels so good. And as we explored last week, immediately he goes out into the desert, and he's tempted. And, and last week, the devil began the temptation with the words, are you really, if you're the son of God? And the reason we keep holding that, that baptism picture there is because Matthew, the writer, wanted you to see that that's what the devil's calling into account. He wanted you to feel this devil going, really? I mean, it's all nice when you're in a river and everything, but now that we're out here in the desert, let's really talk about whether your father loves you. And as we seek to follow him as Christians, we often think in terms of what we do, serving people, being kind to people, laying down our lives for people, being willing to suffer evil, loving our enemies. We think in those terms and because that's what he taught us to do. And we even begin to recognize no matter how hard I try, there's this power that I need from him. If I don't have the, the spirit of, of the living God living through me in a way to empower me, no matter how much my good intentions are to be that person, in real life I won't. And so then we begin to explore what does it mean to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? We're going to talk about that in, in coming weeks after Father's Day. But over the years, I've come to realize this question, does my father love me, is what's really sitting at the back of all. And today I want to pick up identity, and which is the second temptation. I want us to look at Jesus' struggle with it and then draw some conclusions for ourselves. So let's continue on with the temptation. So um, jumping up to, where are we? Verse, verse 5. It says, The devil took him to the holy city, that'd be Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The pinnacle of the temple. Now, what, I would need to set the stage because, honestly, the temptation here is jump off a building. And I've often joked about this, and if I'm repeating the joke to you, it's okay, laugh again. But uh, <laughs> when I think of the temptations I suffer, you know, uh, greed and lust and anger and whatever temptations that, that befall us, they're heavy and they're difficult. And I see Jesus getting the temptation from Satan, the chief tempter of all tempters, going for the all-time temptation, and he takes Jesus to a, a precipice and says, jump. Most of us have had the opportunity to be at a tall spot and look over. Not so tempting to jump. Like, I, I feel like I'd like that temptation, jump, look down, nope. <laughs> Satan, I win. I'm really good at this tempting stuff, right? If we don't understand what makes this utterly tempting to Jesus, we just gloss over it. It just sounds like more religious language. So the key to understanding is that it's at the pinnacle of the temple, that he's at this high place looking down. And the devil says to him, Jesus, I was reading the Psalms the other day. And the deal with the Psalms, there's 150 of them, and they're really beautiful. By the way, if you're the sort who's like, I really want to try to read the Bible, but it's so tough for me, and I don't know where to go, and some places it's really confusing, the Psalms are this unique section of the Bible, right in the middle, 
where it's 150 poems from all these different people in their different stages of life trying to figure out how to engage God. So whereas most of the Bible is sort of God engaging you, which is huge and important, the Psalms are this place where you can journey along people trying to figure it out. And they don't all have it figured out, by the way. Some are angry and just so mad they can't even figure out what to do with it. And some are like, God's the most amazing thing ever. But the deal is there's a good number of the Psalms which the Jewish people and, and commentators all recognize were pointing forward to the day of Messiah. That they're, they're about when Messiah comes. They're about Messiah himself. And Satan looks at Jesus and says, I was reading the Psalms. I was checking out number 91 the other day. And, and, Wait a minute. That's a messianic Psalm, Jesus. Messiah, Messiah. That's supposed to be you, right? Well, it says this Psalm about you that I was reading just the other day, Jesus. It says that he will command his angels concerning you. And, and on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike against the stone. So what you should do is jump Think about what will happen if Jesus jumps. Just try to play out the tape. He jumps, and the angels catch him, and he lands on the ground like superhero style, like <laughs> like that. And all the people, because they all know Psalm 91 too, and they all know it's Messianic Psalm, and they just watch the angels catch him, and they go, Messiah's here. This is the greatest day ever. He's here. And then they pick him up, and they put him on their shoulders, and they make him Messiah, and it's all fixed. This could really work. And the good news is God promised it. He says it's true, so you should take him up on it. You should make it happen. Because play out Jesus is real trustful. His real trustful is, no, Satan, I don't think you've got this figured out. Because he hasn't even started his ministry at this point. His real trustful is trying to get people to listen to him. People rejecting him. He would, he would heal people, and then his, his enemies would be like, yeah, it's just, he's just a demon, and, and he's just controlling other demons. That's what it is. And, and he, would, he would teach things, and they'd be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just a moron. And, and, they, and they'd try to kill him, and eventually they arrest him, and his disciples all flee, and they, half the time they didn't understand him anyway. And beyond that, they all run away, and he's here at a, at a puppet trial where they're ripping out his, and, they, and, and then they crucify him. That is a terrifically long fall. And at the bottom of a tomb, on the third day, the father says, caught you. That is the fall that Jesus took instead of this one. You see, if Jesus jumps that day, no persecution, no rejection, no hurt, no misunderstanding, no people looking at you going, you're not who you think you are, no cross, no salvation, no saving, no you. What's the point? He's able to see it. He's able to see that if he trusts his father to fall where his father wants him to go, it's going to be difficult and, and his identity will be questioned over and over. And this day the devil said, make your own identity. So if last week the temptation of bread was make your own provision, your father doesn't really love you enough doesn't really love you enough to provide for you. You better provide for yourself. This week, the temptation is your father does not love you enough to provide for your identity. And Jesus' answer is so important. He says to him, uh, he says, um, I'm sorry, I keep looking at the next uh, temptation. I apologize. Uh, on their hands, uh, and Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Not 
put him to the test. He recognizes that in the past, that you should not put your uh, God to the test is from the Deuteronomy, which was at the end of all of Israel's travails in in the wilderness centuries before, the Deuteronomy sums it up and says, this is how to follow God. And he's, and he's, and Moses was writing saying, don't put him to the test like you did, where they would say, God isn't with us. God doesn't really have us. Sure, he brought us out into the desert, but I think he wants to kill us. It was all about trusting God. And Jesus is reckoning Moses' words to Israel, don't test God. And he's like, I'm not doing that age-old game where when God doesn't come through for me, I say, maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't love me. It's all about identity. So let's pick up this idea of identity here for a moment. And I've got a list here just of, of things that help us understand what it is our souls want and look for here. All right. And the first thing, we said this last week, if, if our appetites, which lead us toward provision, are a gift from God, in the same way, so is your identity. Have you ever studied any of those Eastern religions where everybody just sort of melts into one? The idea that you are a drop of water and your individuality is, and when, when you, uh, or when you die or when you reach karma, we, we could talk about Eastern religion, uh, but you become a drop in the ocean, you disappear. The goal is for you to cease to be. But in Jesus's teaching and, and in, the, in the thought that Christianity and Judaism brought before it is, God made you individually. God made you and loves you as his own creation. He's, he's actually really proud of what he made. He's super excited about his ability to make a you. He made one of those, you, and, and, and you here. He was, he was you know, there's my, my friend Ethan here. I've known Ethan since he was born. Picture of you popped up on Facebook the other day with you and Narnia right next to the little babies, right? I've known these people, but, and as much as Michael and Teresa participated in the making of an Ethan, they had no idea what they were doing. The fact is, God, craft well. <laughs> yes. Yes, Michael and Teresa, when a man and a woman love each other very much. No, that's not what I mean. They don't know how to make this. They found out what God was making. (laughs) I need to walk off stage. No, I can't. All right. (laughs) There's only one like him. God knows how to make a one of a you. It's a gift. And because of that, it creates a unique purpose for who you really are, that God crafted you to eternally build his things, even in heaven. Of course, in heaven, without sin and all our failure and breaking things, it's going to be a lot more fun and a lot easier, I I guess. You will still have eternal works to accomplish. Work is actually a gift from God that you would have purpose, that you would experience the fun of setting out to make something or to do something. Artists get to really experience this more, I think, than some of us who just sort of check in the clock or whatever. God made you to do a unique thing. But here's what happens with identity. It can create a fear that I'm worthless, useless, nobody. Here's what I mean here. Very few of us spend much time of our day going, am I a nobody? Am I a nobody? Am I a nobody? It's actually crawling underneath. Think about the last time at work somebody else got promoted ahead of you. Remember that feeling that came? I'm getting behind. I'm a nobody. Think about the last time you were part of a social circle and people maybe hung out and, and you weren't invited. You remember that fear that grew up in your soul? 
unless you're like my friend Terry Lynn Mill, who's a real introvert. She's like, whew, thank goodness I don't have to do another one of those public things. But for the rest of you, uh, do you remember that time that your husband or your wife or your loved one, they, they forgot to love you the way they meant to, and you felt that love departing, and you felt like, maybe I'm not the sort that's really that lovable? I was thinking about this, and then this week, just normal stuff, not the other kind of thing that I was talking about earlier, but just I just rolled up to my wife in bed, and, and, and she sighed and goes, I just love it when you draw near. A part of me was surprised. 21 years in, she's experienced, expressed nothing but love for me across those years. There's never been a moment where I've been like, I think she regrets marrying me, except for those first few months, but that's really normal, right? And... Uh, and yet there's still the part of me that's questioning, am I really that person? And here's what happens, all of those things. It can tempt us to invest in that which doesn't matter, to make a name for ourselves. Have you ever looked in the mirror and seen who you are and found the part of you that you didn't like and thought what you were going to do to try to protect that or make it better or... Amy and I were talking this week and she was talking about some of the women she ministers to and how, how often they'll say, there's this part of me I hate, maybe, um, you know, my, like my eyes are too big or, or, or too close together. My eyes are close together. She talked about how many women were, well, she put that up as a post and how many women resonated with that. And I thought, yeah, I look in the mirror and wish I wasn't balding. I'm still really annoyed by that. It's been years and I... It doesn't matter what part of us, big, small promotions, we always are longing for an identity. And what we're really looking for at the very heart of us is that place in our eternity where it's already solved. Your heart is longing for heaven. It wants to be there. It wants to find out the fullness of who you are and what you were made to be and what it's crying. I must be something. And here on this earth, I feel so far from it. And like Jesus standing on the temple, our hearts are going, if I just force God's hand, then he'll come through. And he doesn't. It can tempt us to try to force God's hand. That's the last one, right? So moving forward, here's the slide I have for you. Satan's lie says, when I'm invincible, when I'm invincible, can you go, go forward to the next one? Oh, I think these got doubled up. Keep going. Just flipped right through them. Satan's lie. When I'm invincible, then I'm safe to be who I was made to be. When I'm invincible, when I have no longer any failures, then I can trust my wife's love for me. When I have no longer any failures, I can trust to walk up here and preach on the stage without fear that I'm going to have to like have the um, staff team tell me about all the, the silly things that happened when I was speaking. Or, or when I'm safe from, then I can go to work and everyone's going to go, that one, let's promote him to the CEO or, or hurt. Our hearts want to be bulletproof. I think it's why we love superhero movies so much. I mean, I love the Marvel movies. I don't want to critique them in this sense, except for this. Have you noticed in them, there's the belief that until you have an iron suit or a secret serum or a spider bites you or, or gamma radiation turns you green with rage or whatever it is, until you're that, then you can't really save the world, not you. That's for the other people. Until you're invincible, you can't do it, says the deceiver. And here we are, us broken people with our flaws and failures going, well, what am I going to do? And this one says the opposite. If you want to find the real life, 
the life you were made for. If I can get that slide up. All who want to find the life that God planned for us must follow Jesus into the desert to ask the question, does my father love me? If we want to experience the answers that Christianity has to answer, it's Jesus taught us that we are loved. We stand in, maybe your baptism, maybe you felt that in the past, some moment where God loves us. And out of that love, we walk into the desert and find out what's really going on in our heart. And he uses it to prepare us for the life that your heart is longing for. But you might ask, why? I do. When I'm writing this sermon, I can't help but ask the question, why this way, God? Surely the jump off the temple and have the angels catch me and I land on the ground and everyone says, woo, that's the one. But when we follow Jesus, remember when we followed it out for him? It started good. No rejection, no, no disciples misunderstanding you, none of those things, but we kept going all the way to no cross, no salvation, no point to any of it. First thing you need to understand about the Christ life is that everything that matters is one through a cross. Everything. If we seek to protect ourselves, we actually seek to be precluded from the places that we will lay down our life in order to change the world. The cross is God's plan to change the world. Not just Jesus on the cross, that's the arch plan, but us joining him there and laying down our lives in forgiveness and love and loving our enemies and all the things we talk about. We can't become that sort of person if we haven't experienced deserts to learn how. So the second point here, God uses deserts to prepare our heart for a greater purpose. If you... Um, if you're new to this whole sore faith thing or you're trying to wade your way in, I have a couple Old Testament figures there. I, I apologize for not having a ton of time to explore them. But they're super interesting in that they are two of the most pivotal people who lived before Jesus in terms of God unfolding his plan. Moses, who brought the law. David, the, uh, the great king, who brought the idea of Messiah even into the consciousness with him. These people had to suffer Long deserts. Says Moses was 40 years. After, after he killed the guy and fled Egypt and was, was there, 40 years as a desert, having his soul made ready to be the person who would lead Israel out of Egypt and, and, and be the one who develops them as God's people. No desert. He's, he tried at the beginning. He's like, oh, I saw my people in slavery. I'm going to kill a man. I'm going to make this happen. Yeah, that's not it. No, he had to learn from a desert what it really takes. And in the same way, there was another man who was king before David named Saul, and, and Saul found out that, that David may become king one day and spent 16 years trying to kill him, and David's fleeing around in the Judean wilderness, maybe even some of the same places where Jesus is in this temptation. And, and he must have asked, I thought you said I was going to be a king, God. I thought you said I was somebody. And I'm this nobody fleeing around in the wilderness, hiding in caves. And there comes a moment where Saul comes into a cave that he's hiding in to, to relieve himself, it says. And, and, and he's got to take his cloak off. And so David sneaks up to the cloak and sh sh cuts off a little piece of it. He could have killed him. He could have said, I will make me king. I will put the Lord to this. I'm going to make my own identity. But he had to say, if I don't trust God, what's the point? And, and he walks through it. If you do not suffer deserts and learn to let God establish your identity, everything you do to do your identity will be the thing that breaks everything. 
So one more verse. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is Paul talking about his life. And I'll read it to you really quickly. Um, it says that he, uh, he, he'd been getting these revelations from God, which he's writing to you about in the scripture. And it says, to keep him from becoming uh, too conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations he received, a thorn was given him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. All sorts of guesses of what it was. Maybe a sin he was dealing with, maybe a physical ailment, maybe a person who was persecuting. We don't exactly know. We just know that it says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove it from me. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness. I'm content with not having a super suit. You know, honey, where is my super suit? You don't need one? He says, don't need the super suit. Weaknesses, hardships, persecutions, calamities, because when I am weak, I am strong. So as I was planning to, to, to give this sermon, we built kind of a diagram on the board and I couldn't figure out how to make it here and, and, and have it work for you guys. So I asked Amy how to do it. She said, well, let's just shoot a, a video. So that's what we did. So if you'll excuse the weirdness of me stopping to talk to you so you can see a video of me talking to you. Because the more I've thought about it, that's like the weirdest thing ever. I hope this helps you see a little of what this can look like. So if you would. Okay, so we wanted to make a video for you that when we, when we hear Paul say, my strength is made perfect in weakness, or, or when I rejoice all the more in my weaknesses wherever I'm weak, I'm strong. We wanted to make a video of what does it really practically look like to live this out in the Christian life, okay? So we start with a simple thing that all of us have to contend with. Is that I fail? Now you fail. We're broken. And by brokenness and failure, I don't just mean that we screw up sometimes. I mean something far more problematic. That there are places and pieces in myself that when I look and if I were to admit it to you, that if you were to see them, I would squirm or, or I would even fear that you'd look at me and go, you know what, never mind, I'm out of here. Okay, and wherever we have that kind of failure, we have this fear uh, of being exposed. Or a fear of exposure. Uh, and fear of exposure makes me want to say, I have to hide. Wherever it is that I sense that I'm going to be opened up and others are going to make fun of me, and maybe if you remember in junior high or in elementary school, maybe someone did poke right fun at something at yourself. Uh, I remember in junior high, a kid from the rock did. Turns out, who cares? But he did. Brought it right up, made fun of it, and for a long time it took me like, oh, I just wanted to somehow get rid of that in myself. How much more so the real broken places, the addictions, the failures. And what happens is wherever we're hiding, wherever we're taking ourselves and putting ourselves away, we end up being separated from our true purpose. It, it keeps us, keeps us from doing what God wants us to, to do or what God made us to do. And God's purpose. And whenever we feel separated from Him hearts cringe, feel worthless, feel like a failure, we're back here again, and now we find ourselves a cycle. But this kind of cycle, that where I feel separated from who God made me to be, I feel like a failure, and or, or whenever I sin, or all these sorts of things, and we go, and the human condition is to look for a way out. No one wants to be stuck in this. 
and what most of us try, and what most of us are trying, is to say, which spot can I do? I, I, I can't do this. I, 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 what am I going to do? Not hide? Because it'll keep me from being exposed. And we look here and go, what if I make a purpose Surely I can make my own purpose. I'm going to call this my own purpose. There's been a lot of discussion lately about whether or not LeBron James is the greatest basketball player ever, or whether it's Michael Jordan, it's LeBron. And, uh, but the question is, why have they lived their lives like that? Why have they put all of their strength and their might? It's not just that basketball is fun. They're longing to make a name for themselves. They've chosen a purpose and saying, surely if I can get there, Surely if I can be the greatest of all time, then I will have achieved it. But I promise if you were to set foot into their true lives, they're still looking for it. Because even when you crawl to the top of the heap, you don't find it. This thing right here is what makes Pharaoh's build the pyramids. It's what makes Alexander try to conquer the world. It's what makes you seek to make a name or a position or a place for yourself. But you notice it never really works. Here we are, stuck being more and more complaining. And we can stay here for a long time because if I believe if I just get there a little bit better, a little bit more, I'll finally show up. No, it doesn't, all right? So if this here, keeping us from God's purpose, if it's not the way out, we're going to need a new one. We're going to need to find a way out of this cycle, and the answer is to start right now. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have the ability to freely and openly admit our failure. It's actually a thing that we call confession. So I'm going to put confession right here. And you, what you're going to notice is I'm looking to get out of this cycle and live up and above it right here. So I'm just going to write here confession. Confession is this Christian principle that says when I admit my true sin and my true failure, it's opening it up and going, up. Oh, I really am this. But instead of living with fear of exposure, I can take my sin and say, I can draw a big cross here. Jesus paid it all. He went to the cross. He bought my sin. He bought my failure. He bought my shame. And he took it all on the cross with him and buried it with him. And he says, you are forgiven. You are mine. And when we accept that, it's humiliating. And my pride doesn't want me to. My pride says, no way. Let's go back here and try this do-it-ourself thing. And I end up back stuck in futility. But when I allow humility to reign, confession takes me to the cross, which takes me to things like, first of all, it takes me to things like worshiping Jesus and saying, how could you have paid for me? But beyond that, he does something even greater. He invites you to say, I am broken. I am vulnerable. And I trust. I'm broken, yeah. But my vulnerability in opening up and going, this is really who I am. But I trust that he is making a new me. And from that trust, I'm able to reach out and begin to serve others and love others and begin to, despite this having been true, I can still reach out and serve in faith. I don't have to stand up on the stage and preach to you hoping that I'm somehow good enough because I'm not. I don't, have to, I don't have to reach out and look and try to love into your life hoping that I'm good enough because I am not. But I am bought by a price. I'm broken. I'm vulnerable. And I trust that he will make the name for me that he wants to through faith. And what that does is that brings us around with success. 
we are connected to our true purpose to who we truly are and from there we are able to live out the life by faith but notice the thing i want you to see the reason we did this as a circle within a circle is at any given time my pride which also returns or my failure to return can suck me back down into the futility and the way out the only way out over and over and over again is by confession living through trusting the cross and our broken vulnerability and coming back out out to here this is the christian way so therefore even though i'm weak i'm strong through his power and through faith in him using me that's what second corinthians 12 is all about so this is the uh, matter where in your life as we start into this last set of worship take time with god even if if you uh, don't need to sing every word or whatever, where in your life have you said to God, I can't trust your grace, your cross to cover this failure, this brokenness? And how does that force you into the life of trying to make a name for yourself at work, at home, as a mom, as a dad, as a, all those identities you're choosing, all of them that you're fighting for that cause anxiety and brokenness and, and, that, and all the fears to rise up, if you can, Begin the life of trust that the cross has paid it all and that you can follow him out of it. You will find freedom like you've never found. So let's worship together. So in my sermon, I joked about Michael Jordan and LeBron. But maybe you remember Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. If you haven't seen it, it doesn't even matter if you cared about his career. Watch it sometimes. It's on, you know, YouTube or whatever. It was filled with bitterness it was filled with repeats of all the people who had, remember you, high school coach, who didn't start me, remember you. He, that's what it was. He was the greatest who had ever been, and it still hadn't satisfied. The identities we look for cannot satisfy if they're not found in the eternal one that God made for you. It's the one your heart is craving to find out. But here on this broken side of eternity... It will always fall short. We'll always be looking for it. And if we begin to press God for it and follow those broken things, we end up in that futility cycle. And I want to encourage you this week to start looking for the places in your life where trusting God is terrifying. And so you hold on to your own identity so that you can feel good about yourself. It doesn't work. It didn't work for Michael Jordan. It won't work for us. The one you're eternally made for Ask him to begin to reveal it to you. Have a fantastic week, and we'll see you next time.